The following is an audio-only version of my Bad Movie Beatdown Review 2019 video designed to be listened to on the go. Because this was initially made as a video, there are going to be some instances where occasionally visual gags might get lost in this version, but because the vast majority of the episode is dialogue, I decided to release it on the podcast as well. Also note that the audio quality will be different because I'm using a different microphone. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Bad Movie Beatdown and pinch me because I'm actually releasing this episode in February. I can't believe I'm releasing my year-end video in February. That's so much earlier than I did last year and that's not the only impressive thing either. I have somehow managed to watch over 150 movies released in 2019. Yes, I've not only managed to outdo the previous year but do it in far less time as well and I genuinely have no idea how I've accomplished that. I have watched a frankly head-spinning amount of movies, and I reviewed 40 of those on Projector as well. If you're new here, these are the rules. It has been released to a paying audience in 2019, so if it played at festivals in 2018 but wasn't released until a subsequent year, it counts. Movies that were first released in 2018 that didn't reach the UK until 2019, on the other hand, don't, although given how late my previous list was, I doubt we'll have to worry about any crossover. As usual, I am but a mere mortal, which means I haven't seen everything as much as I might appear to, and this isn't exactly set in stone. This is purely how things stand at roughly the end of the year or so. 2019 on film was a year of a lot of things, but in many ways it felt like the culmination of the decade that came before it, and all the major trends that took hold within it. This is most obvious with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which became the dominant blockbuster of this decade, reaching the conclusion of the Infinity Saga with Avengers Endgame. For those of us who remember when corporate movies were largely treated as embarrassments, the genre has come a hell of a long way, and even something like Endgame Endgame was almost impossible to fathom even when the first Avengers movie came out in 2012. It's little wonder why the success of those movies have changed Hollywood, with studios chasing cinematic universes both for better and for worse. With that said, when Scorsese made Ripple's claim that superhero films aren't actually movies but more like theme park rides, I very much disagreed. I think that superhero films can be vehicles for tackling serious subjects just like any genre and can be great pieces of entertainment and spectacle. Some of the best experiences I've ever had had in a cinema is seeing something like the Avengers on opening weekend and seeing an audience laugh and cheer alongside it and getting to share in that communal experience. That, for me, is what cinema is all about. Although, frankly, any attempt to determine what is or isn't cinema is largely just a fool's errand, and mostly just excuses for snobbery or trying to dismiss other people's hard work. And frankly, I was more just saddened that Scorsese thought that way, because honestly, I thought he knew better. 2019 also saw the conclusion of the new Star Wars trilogy with the rise of Skywalker, albeit far less successfully. I remember when the franchise was revived with The Force Awakens, there was genuine excitement, but the inconsistent quality of the films since then, and how messily the Skywalker saga has been resolved, it left many feeling dispirited. I was definitely one of those, and I genuinely don't know if I'll ever go back to watching any of this new trilogy again, knowing how it ended, and honestly the whole thing feels like a major missed opportunity in hindsight. The year was also dominated by Disney's remakes of their animated classics, including Guy Ritchie's Aladdin and Jon Favreau's The Lion King, that were both incredibly successful, in spite of the fact of being absolutely pointless. Because the original films were so recent and beloved, there was no way they were going to make substantial changes, so what you end up getting is a bunch of inferior clones that lacked the energy and creativity of their animated counterparts, because 
they devote all their attention to replicating things like exact shot choices. In other words, the cold, lifeless eyes of the CGI animals in the Lion King redo pretty much sum it up. They stand as monuments to Disney's success and ubiquity and send the signal that they are too big to fail. Why bother taking a risk on an original property when you can make far more money by leaning into your creative bankruptcy and just regurgitating and repackaging your past hits for easy nostalgia? That being said, even when these remakes aren't complete copies, that doesn't necessarily mean they're good. Take Tim Burton's surprisingly morose take on Dumbo, which features Michael Keaton's bizarre villain who's an evil Walt Disney that that runs his own theme park that burns down to the ground at the climax, which would be self-aware if it didn't seem so tone-deaf. Still, there were a few sights surreal this year than boxing announcer Michael Buffer turning up to repeatedly pronounce, LET'S GET READY FOR DUMBO! These remakes didn't even stop at the big screen because on Disney Plus we had the live action version of Lady and the Tramp. If you ever had the burning desire to take an animated classic and turn it into every other talking dog movie. With Disney dominating IPs and the box office, many smaller films, especially genre fare, now finds itself on Netflix and other streaming sites, representing a larger audience shift as they move increasingly to digital platforms. On the one hand, this means that movies are potentially more accessible than ever, but it does make me worry if they're seen as more disposable because of it. There's also the fact that while Netflix and like do arguably produce things that would never get made otherwise, there is an awful load of dross between the highlights, but I suppose that's the price you have to pay. Certainly Netflix has been trying to position itself as a legitimate studio with big budget awards causing fare like The Irishman or Marriage Story and many others that are great films that a decade ago would have had prominent places in cinemas, and I don't want that older skewing fare to just be consigned to streamers. The real problem though will only become apparent over the next decade as major studios like Disney, Warner Brothers and many others compete for their share of the streaming pie and in the process many films will find themselves locked behind paywalls and become harder to see than ever and the bubble may well burst because of it. It's an area that has changed radically over the last 10 years I only expect it to do more so in the future. One of 2019's more regrettable trends is how many damn movies were made about Charles Manson. Admittedly 2019 marks the 50th anniversary of the Hell to Skelter murders, but a lot of it is also filmmakers trying to compete with Quentin Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which covered this subject. The worst of these I'll be talking about later, the exceptionally despicable The Haunting of Sharon Tate, but we also got Matt Smith as Manson in Charlie Says, a well-intentioned if not entirely successful dramatization of trying to rehabilitate three women brainwashed by him. While I was not a fan of Tarantino's film, which largely exists to create a fancy version of of his childhood vision of 1969 that never ended, at least it used Madsen very minimally and treated Tate, played there by Margot Robbie, as an actual human being, which was far more effective than recreating her murder ever could be. It may be an indulgent film that builds up to a predictable Inglorious Bastard style ending, but at least it afforded that kind of dignity. However, having seen all three films, I was very burnt out on the subject by the end of it, and it's simply too much time spent in the company of something so horrendous.
With that gladly out of the way, let's turn our attention to the worst of this, which may well be the most competitive it has been in recent memory, to the point where it was genuinely hard to whistle it down to 10. In fact, I will start off by listing things that didn't make the cut this year. Playmobil isn't on the list. Dark Phoenix isn't on there either. Not even Star Wars is on there. Or Countdown. That's how you know that these are the worst of the worst, in my opinion, excelling themselves with dubious distinction. So, let's take a moment to appreciate these cinematic train wrecks. Six Underground Some filmmakers turn to Netflix to give them the freedom to do their passion projects, but in Michael Bay's case it appears to be to finally free himself from the shackles of visual and narrative coherency. The tone is set by a 20 minute long car chase through Florence that makes one a good day to die hard look brief and restrained by comparison that includes several music changes, backseat bullet surgery, a severed eyeball, and enough time to stop at the statue of David to do a dick joke. The plot is essentially an R-rated version of the A-Team with Ryan Rails as an Elon Musk-esque billionaire leading a team of mercenaries who have faked their deaths to stage a coup. And believe me, that sounds a lot more straightforward than it is actually watching this disjointed mess or of its needless flashbacks and time jumps. Of course, the plot is nothing more than excuse for constant action scenes, but this is some of the worst direction and editing bears ever put in one of his movies, where the set pieces are way too long and so jumbled that you can't work out why or where anything is happening in volleys of quick cuts. Bay knows how to stage a great shot, but everything is framed like a money shot with saturated colours, lens flares and speed ramping that it all becomes noise that is exhausting to follow. Teaming with Reynolds and the rest of the Deadpool, Bay finds the style that fits his cynical unpleasant worldview, glibly spouting one-liners and constant swearing amid gory carnage that barely makes sense. It may be Bay's shortest movie in many years, but Six Underground still feels twice as long as it actually is because it gives full indulgence to his very worst instincts. And this $150 million bonfire is Netflix's biggest waste of money since Brides. Cats. It's only fitting that the decade ended with a truly spectacular folly that we talked about for years to come to ask in one collective voice, what the hell were they thinking? Andrew Lloyd Webber's long-running stage play, adapted from poems by T.S. Eliot, was already pretty inexplicable, but Tom Hooper's decision to bring it to film by using CGI to turn his cast into rejects from the island of Dr. Moreau is an astonishing miscalculation. The human-cat hybrids are terrifying gazes into the uncanny valley that are far worse than the makeup and costumes used on stage, and the technology struggles to keep up, resulting in floating feet and faces. Some cinemas actually got sent an incomplete version of this film at first, meaning it's the rare movie that had to be patched after release. Despite the fact that it's so unbelievably ugly, you can hardly tear your eyes away from it as you watch revered actors like Judi Dench or Ian McKellen pretending to be cats, although full credit to pop stars Jason Derulo and Taylor Swift for committing to the insanity and coming away unscathed. The same will not be said for Idris Elba, who will 
never lived down the day he became a pseudo-naked fur man. Given the play has hardly any plot, Katz tries to go for a dreamlike aesthetic, but it's more like a nightmare, especially given freakish imagery like Rebel Wilson unzipping her own skin, or cockroaches with human faces doing musical numbers that would make David Lynch soil himself with fear. This is the kind of drop-your-popcorn catastrophe that so rarely comes along, and there hasn't been a major release so primed for so bad it's good midnight screening status since Showgirls. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Look, I'm not gonna claim that Gareth Edwards' 2014 film was all that great, especially the frustrating way it kept cutting away from the monsters to bland, uninteresting human characters. King of the Monsters goes the whole opposite direction by pretty much being wall-to-wall kaiju carnage, but it manages to make them utterly tedious thanks to terrible shaky camera work, often covered with rain and snow, with wall-to-wall flashes and thunder that makes them virtually impossible to follow. At one point, a major character meets their demise in such an unclear way, they had to cut to a computer screen to make sure we know that they died. Clearly they were trying to make this beautiful, but everything is so stylized and so amped up that it becomes actively unpleasant to sit through. It's like sticking your head in a washing machine with a bunch of glow sticks. The script between battles is painfully stupid, with talented actors like Vera Farmiga spouting horrendous dog and trying to make their contradictory characters make any kind of sense, and it's pretty much just a bunch of references to earlier Godzilla movies sticky tape together regardless of logic. This is a movie that tries to have its cake and eat it by having an environmental theme by claiming that the monsters are restoring the planet, so them destroying cities is a good thing. But also the environmentalists are terrorist villains who enact mass genocide, because this is a movie that is so profoundly confused. This repetitive assault of a movie is the closest Godzilla has gotten to a Michael Bay Transformers flick, and it left me with a throbbing headache, as well as a deep dread of the upcoming Kong vs. Godzilla crossover later in 2020. The Haunting of Sharon Tate An abhorrent exploitation flick that has total disrespect for the gravity of the events portrayed, you feel cleaner swimming in sewage than you would after watching this. Hilary Duff leads a host of awful, unconvincing performances that don't remotely feel like the 60s, as this was cheaply filmed on one location to get the jump on Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Already a terrible horror film with risible jump scares and several fake-out dream sequences on its own terms, but to overlay that on real tragedy is absolutely despicable. The tone is set by the opening credits, which pans over the crime scene and lingers over every bloody body and detail, finally settling on Tate. Later, they're graphically depicted as the victims beg for mercy, to the extent that I actually had to look away from the screen because I was so nauseated at what this film constituted as entertainment. It not just reminds you of Tate's death and defines her by it, but revels in it repeatedly and frequently brings up a pregnancy to sickening effect. Real-life crime footage is also worked in, as is footage of Manson, to the extent that one of his songs is even played during the movie, because this couldn't be any more ghoulish if it tried. This is not just the worst film of the year, it might well be one of the worst
worst films I've ever watched, and certainly one of the ones that I most regret ever having witnessed. Director Daniel Franz finished up the year with another movie, The Murder of Nicole Brown Simpson, which was originally titled Haunting, just as this movie was, before the backlash forced them to change it, because apparently even exploiting murder victims for horror films needs to be a cinematic universe now. Hellboy. Neil Marshall's first film in nine years, this new version of Hellboy really makes you wonder what the hell happened to the guy that made dog soldiers in The Descent? For that matter, all anyone wanted was for Guillermo del Toro to make the third entry in his series and absolutely nobody was clamouring for a hard R reboot, as proven by its dismal performance at the box office. With its troll production clearly apparent on screen, this new incarnation struggles mightily to justify its existence, retreading so much of the same ground that it just constantly reminds you how much better it was done 15 years ago. If anything, the movie does such a bad job establishing Hellboy and his world that it often plays like its own bad sequel, referring to characters and situations like we're already acquainted with them, although even fans of the comic might struggle to follow the incoherent plot that's very loosely based on the Wild Hunt miniseries. It's hard to say what's more embarrassing, Mila Jovovich's severed talking head, Stephen Graham voicing a sweary pig man, or the atrocious CGI effects including a fight with giants that looks like a PlayStation 2 cutscene. Even David Harbour can't hold a candle to Ron Perlman's performance, often looking swamped by the heavy makeup, and his relationship with Ian McShane's Professor Broom is pretty much the latter yelling, BE A MAN! and acting like a dick. They didn't even know how to end it, because this concludes on three different setups for a sequel that is never going to happen, so this gory mess can go straight to hell. Killers Anonymous. A bunch of assassins hold a group therapy session spouting tedious mold followed by twists you don't care about or why, as Gary Oldman sits on a rooftop doing nothing to bait and switch you into watching this. Yet, the 90s called, they want their Tarantino clone back, and this is down there with the worst of them, feeling mightily impressed with itself, and thinks that it's clever and darkly humorous when it very plainly isn't. This might be one of the most brazen audience con jobs I think I've seen in some time. Gary Oldman, Jessica Albert, and Suki Waterhouse all appear in this at a heavily promoted as such, but they clearly shot their material separately, and barely, or just straight up don't interact with the main cast or story at all. In fact, Albert is out of the movie by the time the opening credits have finished, and Waterhouse literally phones her role in. The rest of it is watching a bunch of actors of wildly varying quality, including Tim McKinney, who is way too good to be in this drivel, taking turns to swear at each other and act tough with the kind of script that you normally see at a student am-dram night before it inevitably culminates in a big bloodbath in the last few minutes. There's so much empty posturing and pontification in this film that I felt my urge to kill rising just to end the inanity of it all. Quite why Gary Oldman is following up his Oscar win for Darkest Hour by slumming it in direct-to-video flicks like this or The Courier is a mystery even if it is an easy two days work, unless he's dead set on becoming the British equivalent of Bruce Willis. 
this. Love is Blind. Shot all the way back in 2015 and even has the signs in the background to prove it, Love is Blind sat on the shelf for four years before emerging as a barely released mess. Shantar Bet plays women afflicted with selective perception, a form of psychological blindness that means that she can't see her mother, Chloe Savigny. And yes, that includes sound or any other sign of contact because this gratingly whimsical concept doesn't make any sense. Elsewhere, Poldark's Aiden Turner plays a man with suicidal tendencies who feels some calling to be invisible, and wouldn't you know it, he falls in love with Tarbet, who he is literally invisible to, because she can't see him either. That means plenty of ostensibly romantic scenes where he follows her home that are far closer to stalking given that she cannot perceive of him. Isn't that the premise of that Invisible Man remake? As you can tell, this is obnoxiously quirky in the worst ways, and no one acts like human beings, especially not Benjamin Walker's awful, borderline offensive performance as a psychologist with autism who apparently doesn't understand emotions because of it and warbles on about the roundness of hamburgers. First-time film directors Monty White, Blue, and A. Delaney do a terrible job of setting the tone, varying from comic suicide attempts to scenes of heavy emotion, and the film is so badly made on a technical level that its artsy visual flourishes look more like accidents. The only person that gets out of this movie with their dignity intact is Matthew Broderick, and that's because he spends most of the movie asleep in a hospital bed. Lucky him! Coincidentally, another film came out in 2019 with a very similar premise called Above the Shadows, featuring Olivia Thirlby as a woman who is invisible to the entire rest of the world, which itself sat on the shelf for two years. That one's a little bit better than Love is Blind, but even so, both those films were invisibly released with good reason. The Queen's Corgi from Belgian studio N-Wave, who previously gave us the bizarre The Son of Bigfoot, comes this royal comedy that is wildly inappropriate for its target audience. Shortly after opening with the usual poop jokes mixed with cuteness that you would expect, the movie immediately veers into WTF territory when President Trump arrives for a royal visit, complete with references to Kafifi and lines like, grab them by the puppy. That's right, this is the rare children's movie that makes jokes about real-life assault claims. But it gets even worse because the subsequent sequence sees the titular Queen's Corgi Rex fleeing in terror as Trump's pet Corgi tries to force herself on top of him, all played for laughs as she coos lines like, take me stud muffin. Yikes. Later on, there's even references to domestic violence and suicide, as well as an extended riff on Fight Club, of all things, because there's a subplot about an underground dogfighting ring. Even putting those things aside, this has subpar animation, laboured slapstick, and shoddy dubbing. In the UK, this was released with an all-star voice cast that included Jack Whitehall, Julie Walters, Matt Lucas, and Ray Winstone, all providing their voices and shoddy lip sync along with it. When you could have taken your kids to go and see Toy Story 4 in 
instead, any parents who took their children to go and see this should be royally embarrassed, and probably were about the time they had to explain why that addicted sniffer dog thought that a shoelace was a line of cocaine. Serenity. Obviously not to be confused with the Firefly movie of the same name, this sees Anne Hathaway ask her fisherman ex, Matthew McConaughey, to murder her abusive husband, Jason Clarke. But obviously there's a lot more to it than it first appears, and this movie is already amusingly preposterous before a bonkers mid-film twist sends it hurtling completely off the rails. McConaughey hands it up a storm, hollering into the air and bearing his buttocks at every opportunity, and Clark's drunken spouse almost seems like an attempt to make him seem grounded by comparison. Elsewhere, Hathaway gets the thankless task of having to take this all very seriously. Jamon Hansu has to be McConaughey's conscience or something, and Diane Lane gets an utterly thankless role as a woman who McConaughey sleeps with for money, which is probably more fun for her than it is for the audience. Much of the first hour is just skirting around the reveal, which is so heavily signposted and alluded to, including 360 panning shots, that it seems like a desperate attempt for it to try and make sense which it doesn't. Hilariously so. I won't spoil it here because part of the fun is being so perplexed at what this movie expects us to swallow, and this is a movie where McConaughey has a Moby Dick-esque quest to find a fish called Justice. Symbolism! Clearly Peaky Blinders creator Stephen Knight thought he was creating something meta, Hitchcockian and modern about free will, but all he's done is create a silly erotic thriller with one of the worst twists of all time. Sex Tuplets. This dire, laugh-free Netflix comedy sees Marlon Wayans in seven different roles in a succession of lazy references and writing passing for humour. Sometimes the makeup effects are surprisingly decent, but then other twins barely disguise Wayans at all, and his thin range is exposed over a succession of shrill, obnoxious performances based on stereotypes. The only twin that emerges as some kind of interesting comic character is some sort of supervillain that is barely even utilised. This is clearly trying to emulate Eddie Murphy's frequent trick of playing off himself, but at this point that's like making a photocopy of a photocopy, given how much Murphy has worn that gimmick into the ground, and also Murphy is far better at character work, or at least not just doing a bunch of stupid voices. This is a movie so cheap that the seven characters never appear all at one time together, always finding some excuse to write them out or staging sequences in basic close-ups and split screens. This reteams Wayne's and Fifty Shades of Black director Michael Ties, and while this isn't nearly as hateful and crass as that is, this has hardly any jokes in it aside from referencing vintage TV shows, culminating in a baffling police chase in the Rockford Files car for absolutely no reason. This sitcom level rubbish makes the clumps look like high R and looks alarmingly close to the fatties fart 2 from Tropic Thunder, and that's before a CGI bull turns up. So with that sourness out of my system, let's get into some of the movies that I really enjoyed this year, and maybe some of your favourites will be on my list as well. Here's some of the films that I thought were among the year's very best. Avengers Endgame 
As I said before, Endgame was a movie that was a decade in the making, serving as a capital one of the most ambitious cinematic narratives ever, and like a particularly long season finale, provides closure that is hugely satisfying. That's quite an accomplishment considering I wasn't that much of a fan of Infinity War, particularly because, to my mind, the huge sea of characters got lost in all the spectacle. Endgame, on the other hand, finds those characters again, especially due to a bold early choice that allows the remaining characters to grow and change in surprising ways as they sit with the consequences of Infinity War's ending. The time travel mechanic that allows them to go back to the most famous moments of previous Marvel movies may be congratulatory, but it's also very, very fun, and underlines how much these characters have evolved in the time we spent with them, as well as tying up all those lingering threads. Josh Brolin's Thanos continues to be a fantastic villain, even in smaller doses this time out, at once so compelling and so odious that you can't wait for him to get his head kicked in by several dozen superheroes. And once that final battle rolls around, you can feel the electricity in the packed audience. That is as cinematic as it gets. While I'm not sure if the Marvel Cinematic Universe can top this, or even deal with its lingering ramifications, judging by the disappointing Spider-Man Far From Home, this will still stand as the one glorious moment where the genre stood at its absolute apex. Diego Maradona. You probably won't be surprised to hear that I really don't care about football or soccer or whatever you want to call it, so the fact this appears on my best of the year list only goes to show just how good it is. That shouldn't be a surprise though, because this is directed by Asif Kapadia, who made the similarly brilliant Amy and Senna, who weaves the story of the Argentinian footballer in his usual style, combining often unseen archive footage with new interviews in voiceover to create an utterly compelling narrative. Maradona's story has everything, rising from poverty to become one of the most celebrated footballers ever, and the film focuses on his time in Naples as he rises the team Napoli to success. But Maradona almost becomes like this Jekyll and Hyde style figure where on the one hand you celebrate the brilliance and beauty of his ability on the pitch, but off of it he becomes embroiled in affairs, drug abuse, links with organised crime and corruption, and those scandals eventually build up to destroy his reputation. It emerges as this grand operatic tragedy where, to some extent, Maradona is an empathetic figure whose abilities may become celebrated as an almost godlike hero to the people of Naples and Argentina. The reality was that he was a deeply flawed man who was consumed by the pressures and demands of his own fame before falling victim to it. So yes, I may not be a football fan, but this movie made me understand the power of it, and this documentary is well worth seeing regardless of whether or not you're interested in the sport. Dolomite is my name. After a long absence, Eddie Murphy returns to our screen and is back to his profane, electrifying best as Rudy Ray Moore in this crowd-pleasing biopic that's very funny, but also generous and has a lot to say about representation. No joke, this is probably Murphy's finest hour, and even better than his turn in Dreamgirls. This is the Murphy we knew he still had in him, even in projects that didn't use him well, but there's also notes of humility and softness in his performance that have come through with age. What stuck with me through the film is how Rudy is someone that kicks down the door after it's been slammed shut, where the often white controllers of taste deem that he's too niche for a wide audience and 
makes himself success through sheer force of will and personality. But in so doing, he opens up opportunities for others, as shown by a great supporting term by Divine Joy Randolph, and also works hard for it, even pleasuring to go make sandwiches if he has to, which makes this very different from Tai Wiseau's abusive vanity that characterised the disaster artist. Wesley Snipes is also the best he's been in decades here as the uncaring director, and he and Murphy play off each other really well, which makes it totally understandable why they're re-teaming for the Coming to America sequel. It's the making of a bad movie that doesn't just point and laugh, but laughs along with it, and understands how its existence can be important in ways beyond what is on the screen. The Irishman. Martin Scorsese's return to the gangster movie that re-teams him with his regular collaborators Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci sees the director tackle the one thing that catches up to all of us, aging. A lot of this has already been discussed with the de-aging technology that purportedly allows the actors to play their roles at various times, but I don't think the effect is all that convincing and mildly distracting at worst. However, as an examination of mortality, The Irishman is one of Scorsese's very best films, taking its time across three and a half hours to create a sprawling crime saga with a sense of tragedy and guilt. De Niro's performance as Frank Sheeran is one where his quiet but detached demeanour hides his capacity for brutal violence, and Al Pacino is the best he's been in a long time as Jimmy Hoffa, whose trust and friendship with Sheeran sets the stage for an infamous betrayal. We know that Hoffa is a dead man walking, but that's not uncommon in this world, where characters appear with text cards explaining when and how they died, like an expiration date, and death looms large over the proceedings. Scorsese has been previously accused in Casino and Goodfellas of making a life of crime seem glamorous. I think that's a major misreading, but certainly no one can level that accusation at The Irishman, which makes that world seem cold, insular, and ultimately lonely if you even survive that long. A special mention should go to Joe Pesci, who emerges out of semi-retirement to play a much quieter role than the Mad Dogs he played previously, which gives him a kind of gravitas that becomes especially poignant in his final scenes. Even if the final section maybe does drag on a little bit too long, this is still a powerful tale of regret and legacy from a filmmaker that continues to forge a formidable one. Knives and out. Ryan Johnson's update of Agatha Christie-style mysteries is wonderfully devilish fun, managing to be clever, whilst also playing completely fair to the audience. As with the best whodunits, the story relies heavily on misdirection that shakes up what you thought you knew about the story previously, and Knives Out does this beautifully, to the extent where we even question what kind of story we're watching. Daniel Craig revels in his southern accent as Detective Benoit Blanc, a pro S. Sleuth with a donut fixation that sends up such characters, but the real lead of the movie is Andy Armas in a star-making turn as Nurse Marta, a woman so honest she can't even lie without vomiting, whose generosity and warmth serves as the film's moral compass. Surrounding them is a deliciously good cast that includes Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, and Michael Shannon merrily gnawing on the scenery as the various members of the Thromby family, all odious and self 
self-serving in their own ways, and Johnson adds a bit of incisive satire in the mix, especially with the way they treat outside immigrant martyr. This is sharp, smart, and funny that is one of the year's most purely entertaining films, as well as being the rare mystery that may well be rewatchable. It's also one of the most handsomely designed films of the year, and I'm not just talking about how everyone was fawning over Chris Evans's coat and jumper combo. I mean, who wouldn't want to steal that look? Yeah, he probably wears it better. Little Women. Louisa May Alcott's classic story may have been brought to the screen many times before, but Greta Gerwig managed to breathe new life into it with a version that is at once faithful, but also excitingly contemporary. Gerwig's most inventive decision is to use the second volume as a framing device and tying the first volume in flashbacks, and having the two narratives play out concurrently allows for a new perspective that emphasises the story's most emotional beats. That duality also reiterates one of the main ideas of the story between the innocence and ambition of childhood and the mature hardships of adulthood, as the characters strive to be taken seriously as they brace up against the restrictions placed upon women at this time, this is a movie that does take them seriously and views them compassionately. Gerwig's love for the story shines through, especially in the way she puts particular emphasis on the autobiographical elements for Alcott, be it filming in the orchard house where she grew up, or through the the character of Joe playing an absolutely brilliant performance by Saoirse Ronan. This is one of the most exceptionally cast movies I've ever seen where every role is perfectly filled by the likes of Laura Dern, Emma Watson, Meryl Streep and Timothee Chalamet, but Florence Pugh is a particular highlight as Amy, managing to be totally convincing in both the younger and older versions. The end result is a movie that illuminates the story's timeless qualities, as well as being a triumphant celebration of women that is likely to become its definitive adaptation. Marriage Story Noah Bambach is definitely working through some stuff. That's the first, most immediate impression you get watching his Netflix divorce drama, which almost serves as a companion piece to his earlier Squid and the Whale, in large part because it feels so raw in places, but also very accurate. Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson give absolutely career-best performances as the playwright and actress, respectively, that find themselves embroiled in a heated custody battle over whether or not their son stays in New York or Los Angeles, a battle that no one ever really wins if you've ever been through it. Bambach has often had a Woody Allen influence, and certainly can watch it with far less guilt than an Allen movie, but it's rarely been more prominent than it is here. Not just because it has a small supporting role for Wallace Shawn, but also in the way it mixes the painfully funny with the frustrating and heartbreaking to put across the anguish and absurdity of the situation. That said, there is something quite clear-eyed and even optimistic about the way it handles the subject, and you do occasionally occasionally get moments where you see the love of how that relationship started, giving it a very bittersweet quality. There's also fantastic support from the likes of Laura Dern, Alan Alder, and Ray Liotta as the various lawyers in the process, who each have their various perspectives and competitions, and it's always great when Julie Haggerty pops up in a movie. While I think it could be easier to just remember the movie for the already infamous shouting match, it's far more complicated than that, and it's a very sympathetic and human look at a dehumanizing process. 
Parasite. Bong Joon-ho's Korean dark comedy is fiendishly funny from the outset, starting with a poor family managing to con their way into the lives of a wealthy family and their home, setting the stage for a pin-sharp satire of class and privilege. While much of it is directly pointed at the massive inequality and social divides in Korean society, the ideas are so universal that they translate very well. The direction is intelligent and intricately precise, especially in the way that it moves across the home where much of the running time takes place, and how the characters sneak through it, and balancing an evolving tone with characters who are selfish and opportunistic, even the ones who are rich enough to appear outwardly nice. If this was just simply an amusing but sinister farce, this would still likely rank among my favourite films this year, but the way the story progresses adds a whole dimension to the premise, adding up to something altogether unexpected. That is what gives the movie a real punch to it that's in keeping with Jun Ho's previous work, like The Host, especially in a show-stopping conclusion that simply left me stunned. Parasite is a movie that's best to go into knowing as little about it as possible and just become totally immersed in an entertaining and daring piece of work. I was completely absorbed from start to finish, and I think this may well be my favourite film of 2019. It's a real treat. Rocket Man. A biopic of Elton John would need to be as flashy and extravagant as the man himself is, and Rocket Man succeeds at that right from the very start, where Taron Edgerton's Elton storms into a rehab meeting wearing a devil jumpsuit. This framing device, where Elton figuratively and literally takes his persona apart, demonstrates just how fantastic Edgerton is in the role, both as a showman, but also the shy young boy underneath, still desperate to try and impress, as well as seeing all the songs just as good as Elton does. It's also a statement of intent. Rocket Man is not just going to be another music biopic that simply plays the hits, and instead tells its subject's story as a suitably heightened, exaggerated fantasy with cleverly stage musical numbers that are as bold and ambitious as they are arousing, and feels a lot closer to Elton's personality because of it. It's like the opposite of Bohemian Rhapsody, which felt like a bunch of satirized cliches, whereas Rocket Man makes no attempt to hide or downplay Elton's sexuality, and also is very frank and honest about his addictions and volatile temper. That's very ironic considering that Rocket Man director Dexter Fletcher was also the one that helped complete Bohemian. Complementing Edgerton are a host of great performances, including Jamie Bell as songwriter and friend Bernie Taupin, Richard Madden as manager and lover John Reed, and Bryce Alice Howard is especially impressive as his cruel mother. This is slick, playful, gloriously excessive, and triumphant. In other words, a movie as fittingly virtuoso as the man himself. Uncut Gems. Yes, that's right, and Adam Sandler movie is on one of my best of the year lists. The whole world has gone topsy-turvy. I just want to reiterate, I never thought Sandler was untalented, and if you want proof of that, you only need to look here, because this is the best performance he's ever given in a movie, and I'm including Punch Drunk Love in that statement. Sandler's Howard is a compulsive gambler that simply cannot give up the excitement of bigger bets, greater odds, and huge risks, and it's that thin line between exhilaration and devastation that uncut gems rise 
in a cinematic experience that could be genuinely described as nerve-wracking. Howard is not necessarily a likeable character, but he is a compelling one, almost as obsessed with basketball and the fantastical gen that he's misplaced as the concept of winning itself. And we watch in horror as he stacks bets on top of bets and trades every favour he can, practically playing a game of chicken with fate itself to almost suicidal extremes. There may be a streak of dark humour to this, but the Safdie brothers just keep mounting the tension, especially the way the unsettling score and the shouty, sweary dog build an oppressively busy atmosphere that is so anxiety-inducing that it feels like a two-hour panic attack. By the time the finale rolls around, you're practically cheering and screaming at the screen in the same way Howard is at the big game because you're running on the same kind of adrenaline, and Uncut Gems is one hell of a rush. Well, there you have it. The cinematic year of 2019, all its highs and lows, and I'd love to hear what were your favourites or not-so-favourites this year. If you enjoyed this, please support my work over at Patreon, where you can see my reviews early, among other perks, including access to my Discord server. But until next time, I'm Matthew Buck, beating down bad movies everywhere. The music throughout this episode is from HTTPS filmmusic.io, and it is created by Sasha End and Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. Thank you for listening to the Film Brain Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that if you want to support my work, be it podcasts or YouTube videos, please go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash filmbrain where you can experience those episodes early among other perks. And just a quick shout out to my Patreons, Tim Poppleton, SoFox, Inigo Almandos, Tim Tark, G Viral, Robert Murray, Henry Jacob, Joshua Bauer, Anori Hayek, Jonah Gustafsson, Vincent Chiang, Tom Oliver Maddox. And remember, if you have any feedback about the show over social media, please use the hashtag FilmBrainPodcast.